Welcome to Things We Said Today, our bi-weekly podcast about anything and everything to do with the Beatles, collectively and individually, past, present, sometimes even the future. I'm Alan Cozen, the author of The Beatles from the Cavern to the Rooftop, and Got That Something, How the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand, Changed Everything, and co-author with Adrian Sinclair of the forthcoming McCartney Legacy series, Volume 1 due in December. I'm here with my two co-hosts. Ken Michaels, who you know as the host of the syndicated Beatles radio show, Every Little Thing, and co-host of the solo Beatles podcast, Talk More Talk. He also has his own YouTube channel, um, which is packed with Beatles-related interviews. Mm -hmm. Ken? Hey, Alan. Hey, Darren. Hi, y'all. What's up? (laughs) And the Darren that Ken mentioned is, of course, Darren DeVivo, DJ Ed. WFUV-FM 90.7 in the New York area. He's been there since 1984. And if you're not in the vicinity of New York, you can hear him and everything else at WFUV at WFUV.org. And they have apps and other stuff that he will tell you about later. So, hey, Darren. how's Hi, everyone. Hi, Alan. Hey, Ken. Darren. Okay. Today, um, we have a guest, or we'll have a guest soon, in a few minutes, um, Madeline Bocaro, who um, has written a book about Yoko Ono called In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. It looks a bit like this. It looks quite a lot like this, actually. You know why? <laughs> but, because that's it. Yeah. Um, but Real. first, we will have the news from Ken. Ken? All right. Thank you, Alan. I'm sure you've all heard by now the news about Ringo's new EP called EP3, because it's his 30P, you see. It's due out September the 16th with four new tracks. The first song to be heard now on YouTube is called World Go Round, and it was written by the songwriting team of Steve Lukather and Joe Williams. Joe is a member of Toto as is, of course, Steve Lukather. And um, they've also written a few other songs that Ringo recorded on his previous uh, releases, including Let's Change the World from Ringo's last EP, Change the World, and the song Not Enough Love in the World from Ringo's first EP, Zoom In. A lot of world songs coming from those two. Uh, so Lukather actually plays guitar on the new song World Go Round. Joe Williams is on keyboards and it also has a familiar female background singer, Zelma Davis, helping out on the track. The next song is called Everyone and Everything. And uh, returning, uh, the song is um, returning to another one of Ringo's EPs is Linda Perry, former lead singer and songwriter in Four Non Blondes. Perry wrote the song Coming Undone on the Change the World EP. Her new song has what's described as a classic Ringo sound with Perry on guitar and percussion. The next song is the upbeat tune, Let's Be Friends, which Ringo co-wrote with his longtime co-producer and songwriter, Bruce Sugar, and Sam Hollander, who also co-wrote the joyous song, Teach Me to Tango, on Zoom In. The last of the four songs is called Free Your Soul, written by Ringo and Bruce Sugar, described as soothing and rhythmic, with guest appearances by Dave Coz, 
on tenor sax and Jose Antonio Rodriguez on nylon guitar. Uh, also, it has Sugar on keyboards and Nathan East on bass. The new EP will first be made available on CD and digitally on September the 16th. Then on 10-inch vinyl and on limited edition translucent royal blue cassette on November 18th. Darren's waiting for that one. Ringo was quoted as saying, I am in my studio writing and recording every chance I get. It's what I have always done and will continue to do. And releasing EPs more frequently allows me to continue to be creative and give each song a little more love. Well, I have heard the new song several times and I'm enjoying it. As I listen more and more, I'm liking it more and more. At first, I didn't think the chorus was all that strong. And now I do. I do really enjoy it so much more. Love the guitar work from Steve, Steve Lukather on the song. Any thoughts on uh, the new one from Ringo, Darren? Yeah, I like it. Um, it's He doesn't reinvent the wheel. It, the theme and the style is similar to a lot of what he's done lately. Um, but I, I think when it comes to an artist like Ringo, that you want, you want what you expect. That makes sense. You know, you want to there's a certain certain type of song that Ringo is going to give you. And this is it. It's almost like each release has sort of an, 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 an anthemic song. Um, and that's what the, the opening track is. So I was thrilled. I love it. It's it's again, he's done. He's done it before. But I think if there's ever an artist who maybe could repeat himself or do something that's kind of directly related to what he's done recently it's Ringo because uh because we just love love what it's all about again he doesn't reinvent the wheel and it is uh simple straightforward and I always use ACDC as an example the band ACDC gives you what you expect <laughs> all the time and you'd have it there, there is no other way that's the way it should be and that's the case with the uh, a new Ringo release. So I look forward to the other songs because his releases tend to have, like I said, like an anthem. And then he'll venture off into, you know, put his toe in reggae and do maybe do something a little country-ish. So I expect that the other three songs on this will also, you know, allow him to kind of touch on, you know, other styles, especially the last track. I forget the title of Dave Cos is on. Mm -hmm. uh, because he's got, uh, I would imagine it's got to be some sort of flamenco-ish or maybe acoustic, uh, classical acoustic uh, feel because of the, I don't remember his name now, the uh, the acoustic guitarist playing the nylon acoustic. Mm -hmm. um, so. Jose Antonio Rodriguez. So yeah. I give it a thumbs up. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. Okay. I'm getting the cassette. <laughs> You're getting the CD first, aren't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. The cassette, I, you know, the cassette's sort of a conversation piece. Right. I lined them up and it's like, look, they make cassettes today. Yep. Alan? Um, I've listened to it just once and um, pretty much um, pretty much feel the same way as Darren. Um, yeah, it just sound, it sounded to me like a lot of other recent Ringo. Um, it was hard for me to distinguish anything particularly different about it but I, I i guess there's something to what darren says about how 
you want from Ringo, what you expect from Ringo. I mean, granted, I'm still waiting for him to do his cover of Cambridge 69 and walking <laughs> on thin ice. Um, you know, hey, he's done country music. He's done standards. He's done. He hasn't done that. Come on. Come on, Ringo. Get out of your comfort zone. So, um, yeah. It's, it's, no, yeah, it's a track. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, agreeing with the two of you. And see, with me, I always like when Ringo tries to do something a little bit different. You know, he has done reggae more recently on uh, on his EPs, as you said, Teach Me to Tango, I think was a really interesting song. Um, but, you know, some people on the flip side of that kind of find like it's way too repetitive of what Ringo does, the constant peace and love theme. This is all about, you know, improving the world, togetherness, all that kind of stuff. And in a way, you know, we need more people to give us songs like that. So in a way I enjoy hearing uh, this, um, this new song and I think it has a lot of energy and it rocks a bit. And, um, you know, I, I'd much rather Ringo continue and keep doing what he's been doing than not record at all. So um, pretty much how I feel, but uh, I'm looking forward to the new EP and I've enjoyed the last two. It was recorded last Wednesday. This seems like so long ago now um, in deadline that uh, Peter Jackson is planning another film project with Paul and Ringo. Peter was quoted as saying, I'm talking to the Beatles about another project, something very, very different from Get Back. We're seeing what the possibilities are, but it's another project with them. It's not really a documentary, and that's all I can really say. So obviously, it's getting Beatles fans thinking, what could this be? It's putting the word out there, it's getting the buzz, and um, we're all trying to imagine what this, this new project could be. Um, at first, I must admit, with the, the follow-up interview of sorts that Darren and I did um, at the Fest for Beatle Fans, where I was bringing up what could be done with the audio uh, on Beatles recordings because of the new technology that Peter and his team came up with for Get Back, you know, why not clean up uh, the Star Club tapes? You know, mm -hmm. um, so much that you can do, maybe certain recordings that were just in mono, putting them out in stereo, like the deck audition recordings for which it's already been bootlegged in stereo. Um, you know, but apparently this is a film project, so it's not going to be an audio project. So any of you guys have thoughts about this? Not really, because I, I can't imagine what that. it might, you know what I mean? Yeah. I can't imagine what it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping maybe it's some kind of a compilation of live performances of the Beatles mm. that haven't been officially released, you know? That's not a bad idea, because I remember a few years back, we were talking about, um, I guess it was before Hollywood Bowl got reissued. And I don't know if it was when I was a guest here on things we said today back, way back, uh, or maybe it was at the Fest for Beatles fans, what would you like to see come out? Hmm. And I always felt that a live box set of the Beatles uh, where they could in one place collect all of these concerts, you know, right. the DC, the first show in DC, Shea Stadium, all the things that we all want, instead of putting them out as all little random individual things, bring everything under one umbrella. Uh, and perhaps, perhaps, you know, there's the, the, uh, the video aspect of it. And Peter Jackson's been brought in to restore footage 
So uh, if this is what it turns out to be, you heard it here first. Where do I point here? <laughs> you heard it here first. Live Beatles box set. Audio and video. Hmm. Any CDs and DVDs and Blu-rays. And cassettes. Yeah. Well, hopefully soon we'll know more about this. But uh, Peter Jackson did his job, gave us a little teaser, and now it's got us all wondering. Um, I can say, and this is, you know, brand new news. It's been reported in Beatle Fan. There has been some talk about an archival box set for Revolver coming out sometime towards the end of this year, as well as a box set for some time in New York City. And we've been hearing all kinds of rumors that it wasn't going to come out, maybe because of that particular song, which has the N-word in it being a problem. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to know what to say about something like that when you're not given the information about it. But is there anything that um, any of you know more about this from the Beatle fan report, Alan? Um, the Beatle fan report was really just two sentences saying... Mm -hmm revolver and sometime in new york city so there's um not much else we can say all right so between this and the peter jackson quote we got a lot of things to think about mm. enough so that we're all going to lose sleep you know <laughs> the next few weeks i suppose more beetle news uh ringo star and the late taylor hawkins will be featured in a new documentary called Let There Be Drums, which is due to be released in cinemas, believe it or not, on October the 28th. It is being directed by Justin Kreitzman, the son of the Grateful Dead's drummer, Bill Kreitzman. According to Deadline, the film examines the essential role drumming plays in great bands and how music passes from generation to generation. It is set to feature one of Hawkins' final interviews, Along with Ringo, it will also feature Stuart Copeland of The Police, Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Matt Sorum, um, ex-drummer for Guns N' Roses. Kreutzmann took on the project to talk to the world's most influential drummers in hopes of better understanding his father and the instrument that defined his life. All right, People Magazine just came out with a collector's issue in celebration of the 55th anniversary of the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album. You should be able to find it at all major supermarkets. As opposed to those minor supermarkets. At what? As opposed to those minor supermarkets. Yes, okay. Um, in addition to that, of course, there are the recent issues uh, for time and life of uh, for Paul McCartney's 80th birthday in celebration. Julian Lennon's new album, Jude. We now have an official release date for that, September the 9th. Meantime, a brand new video has been made for Julian's new song, Save Me, which you can watch and listen to on YouTube. Jay Bergen, John Lennon's defense attorney and author of Lennon, The Mobster and The Lawyer, has just been added as a guest to the Chicago Fest for Beatle fans at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare in Chicago for the dates August 12th through the 14th. You can find out all the necessary information about the fest at thefest.com. And Jay will be doing a book signing in New York City at Rough Trade Books on August the 23rd at 6 p.m. Don't forget, I did a really interesting interview with Jay explaining the whole trial there, the whole Morris Levy case 
which is on uh, my YouTube channel, Ken Michaels Radio. Due out in the fall is a new book called Lennon and McCartney Painting with Sound by Thomas McFarlane. The book examines the creative dialogue between the two songwriters, both with the Beatles and on their own, and their eclectic approach, which the writer says can be traced back to the Liverpool College of Art, which he considers as the backdrop for the pair's earliest collaborations with painter and musician Stu Sutcliffe. All right, August 19th, uh, there'll be a new book coming out called The Songs the Beatles Gave Away by Colin Hall. This book was inspired by a 2009 BBC Radio 2 documentary that Colin worked on with and for Bob Harris and his wife, Trudy Myerskoff Harris. And for this book, Colin was given permission to use interviews that Bob and Trudy conducted with the likes of Paul McCartney, George Martin, Cilla Black, Jackie Lomax, Mary Hopkin, and others. Previously, only small extracts from these interviews were made available, but now they are presented in full. And since making this documentary in 2009, Colin was able to speak with artists who weren't in the original special to add to the book. And those include Billy J. Kramer, Peter Asher, Megan Davies of the Apple Jacks, and John Clay of the Black Dyke Mills Brass Band. This will be published by Great Northern Books it's 528 pages. All right. One more book I want to mention here. Uh, it's called Abbey Road, the authorized biography of the world's most famous recording studio, written by best-selling author and music journalist David Hepworth. Amazon describes this as the story of Abbey Road has never been told before, featuring interviews with artists, producers, sound engineers, transcripts, photographs, and much more. It's described as how the first purpose-built recording studio would become a phenomenon. The first edition is due out October 6th from Bantam, Bantam Press. And for all release dates for upcoming audio, video, and books, you can always check out my page, upcoming releases on my website, which is kenmichaelsradio.com. Just want I mentioned before we start uh, talking with Madeline, Madeline Bacaro, we're recording this on August the 1st. Three important things happen on August the 1st in Beatle history. Of course, we have the 51st anniversary of the historic concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden. It is also the 44th birthday of Danny Harrison and the 43rd anniversary of the launching of Handmade Films, George Harrison's film company. Hmm. Lots of things happen in George's life on, on August the 1st. Hmm. Interesting. All right. That's all the news I got for you. Okay. So we will send in Ms. Bocaro. Okay. And today we have a special guest, Madeline Bocaro, who has written a book called In Your Mind, The Infinite Universe of Yoko Ono. And uh, we're going to talk to her about, uh, you know, what went into that and why and how and um in fact that's that's probably where we should start i mean you you clearly had um started a friendship with yoko at some point in the 80s and um it sounds like it was really a, a pretty close friendship so um what led you to put everything together in a book Okay, so I had a bunch of short stories that I'd written <clears throat> over the years. 
I had collected everything she'd ever said since like 1967 when I first saw an article about her mm-hmm. and then found out that she was with John and it was just wonderful like seeing them together and I would you know back then you could get everything I had pen pals in England who would send me enemy melody maker you know all the articles and I saved them all in folders chronologically thank goodness mm-hmm. and um I had friends and, you know, a little, I have a blog and some groups and they would all be asking me, well, what does this artwork mean? Or did you see this concert or did you read this album? So I would write about her concerts the next day. I would write about her art, a particular artwork one day, or I'd write about a, you know, a film. And one day someone gave me software to dump all these separate Word documents into a it was called Scrivener and I could put it in folders and arrange it. And a, a lot of people are saying they actually like the flow of it. I, it is chronological, but it kind of just like, it's a puzzle piece, you know, everything fit together perfectly. Mm-hmm. So I have quotes that I pulled from this archive. It, it's a lot of in Yoko's voice a lot. It's Sean talking, John talking, Paul McCartney from published articles. Um, you know, some quotes you've heard, but I tried to use ones that were not, popular, some from Yugoslavian publications, some from, you know, whenever I was talking about an album, I'd say, okay, April 1971, I know she talked about this in Melody Maker. And I remember she said this cool thing about this song, and I would pull that. And also, uh, when I would meet with her, um, we started, I started writing to her when I was young. And little by little, you know, she was writing back. And one day, a friend convinced me to go over to the Dakota which I never had done, you know, but it was probably 1984. And she said, you know, you love her so much. Yoko needs to meet you. So I said, all right, but I'm not going to stay there forever. I'm going on her birthday. So she knows I'm not a Beatle fan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I showed up there with a present and she took the present. She looked at the name on it and she recognized, she just let out a scream and hugged me and kissed me and said, oh my God, I'm so glad you're here. And she was talking about, you know, whatever she was doing at the time and started inviting me to her exhibitions, her, you know, concerts and backstage. And also it was great. I got a lot of insights that way. Mm-hmm. Um, how is she now? Are you, are you in touch with her at the moment? And and is she relatively well? Um, she's not, you know, she's not active right now. She's her health isn't that great. But um, Sean's been very supportive. Her team really loved the talk I did at the Be- the fest for Beatle fans in New York, New Jersey, and mm-hmm. they all bought the book. And you know they're really loving it. So I can't mm-hmm. be happier. Mm-hmm. So it's you know part of it seems to it's like part biography, part catalog in a way of of um, of her individual works and what they're about. And you know it's it's. Uh, uh, interesting as a, potentially as a reference book um, for that kind of thing with all the films, all the art pieces. There are some art pieces in there I, I hadn't heard of before. Um, so uh, with those things, I mean, how did, how did you compile all of that? Did you, was, was some of that um, Yoko leading you through things that she had, had done that you might not have known or. Not really. I had uh, favorite ones, of course, and I I knew what she had done. And I, I basically profiled all the 60s ones, which, which eventually morphed into 70s ones. She didn't she came a little repetitive, but I, I just focused a lot on the 60s pieces, everything that was at the Indica Gallery exhibition where she met John. Oh. Um, 
And, you know, she, we talked about them and she was just so happy that I understood her and loved her. And she was very forthcoming and happy to, you know, give me details. And one time she wrote me in a letter, your intelligent observations always touch me because I would just get the underlying stuff that she was going for. So that was great. And um, one of her prominent pieces is a hole to see the sky through, you know, that came with the fly albums postcard with the hole. And it says hole to see the sky through it was from 1971. And, um, you know, people just think that's cute and she loves the sky. But I asked her one time, you know, I said, you know, I know the story of you being evacuated during the war as a child with your siblings and being sent to this farmhouse that the parents thought was actually in good condition, but it was a mess. And, you know, she's picking mulberries off the trees to feed her siblings. She sees family dying from eating poison mushrooms in the forest. It was a nightmare. So she would lay on the floor, the three of them, and look up at the roof. And in the morning, they would see the sky through this hole in the roof. Mm. And I said, is that what Halt to See the Sky Through is about? And she said, yeah, you got it. So, you know. And speaking of the sky, everybody asked me my favorite artwork. So I have actually a piece of sky that's really beautiful. It was um, auctioned in 2009 for Autism Speaks. Mm -hmm. And it's one of my favorite things. Mm. Nice. And what that that piece dates to when that actually well, this was made in 2009 it's called mm. a piece of sky she's always doing things like a piece of this a piece of that and we'll all meet in 100 years to put it back together you know right mm -hmm. it's a concept but yeah i did a a public interview with her once as a i think a times talk um and she handed out miniature pieces yes of i have those too <laughs> um and and said you know we would all get together in 10 years and and 10 years later i thought about it i thought well how how are we going to do this because i've got this thing sitting on my desk still you know <laughs> and uh how many of us do you know we could make a big piece of sky if we put that all together <laughs> Um, one of the things when when I did that was um, actually kind of interesting to me that at the end, she went down to the edge of the stage and signed autographs for people and talked to people and took questions. And she had this, you know, very big, burly bodyguard with her. And he was standing towards the back of the stage. And I said to him, um, so is she okay with this? I mean, you know, what, how do you, uh, how do you handle this? And he said, you know, she'll let me know if she needs me to, to get in there. Mm -hmm. But, but she was like, she was very open to questions and, uh, and everything. And uh, I think, I think that, um, you know, to this day, there are still people who have a sort of bizarre idea of her as some sort of monster, you know, and she's actually not like that at all, as, as you know. Wow, she's um, wonderful. She's this beautiful spirit. I mean, you can see why John loved her once you've met her. She's mm -hmm. very disarming. She's warm. She actually, she calms you down. She knows what you're feeling, what you're thinking. She's very, very intuitive. And in fact, there's a chapter in the book called Premonitions, and it's all about this kind of stuff where whether it was predicted or or she wrote it in a lyric, there's things that came true 50 years later. And it's so eerie how this all came to be. Mm -hmm. And um, I just feel that she's very spiritual. I try to bring out her 
her soul in the book, really, because she's she's got so much important information about healing and how all our values are misplaced and uh, just I can't even begin. People are saying this is the Bible of wellness. It's not even a book about Yoko. They just say, I'm going to read a, a paragraph, a, a page tonight. And they get through half a page and they say, wait a minute, that was so profound. I have to just think about that mm-hmm. topic, you know, think about that little saying. It's And I always think it's like a million fortune cookies. She's always just got something really wise to say all the time. Mm-hmm. Um Seeing as I, I live, you know, at least half of my life in the classical music world, I was I was impressed with the amount of of coverage you gave to that part of her career. I mean, usually it's covered in like two paragraphs, mm-hmm. and you've got pages and pages of her work with Cage and Mayazumi and and all of these other people. So, um, you know, thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's very important, and you know, the Japanese influence as well. She did most of that, you know, the tour with, with Cage in Japan and just the the influence of nature itself on her her art, her films, her music, everything. Um, she There's a whole section about water, air, you know, trees, her wish trees, and she just uses all that. And she says, you know, everything we need is already here. There's no re- need to create any other art. <laughs> Hmm. And, yeah, I just love the the Japanese chapter, and um, but you know, yeah, what you were saying is um, how she's totally misunderstood. And an example is um, Carolyn Kuhn, the journalist, the British journalist. She had done an interview with Yoko in 1974, and it remains unpublished. And I had hold of it somehow, and I asked her permission to use a lot of it. And she said, "Oh, I'm so thankful that you're going to use this because, you know, I never." published. I said, well, why not? So it was for Cosmopolitan. And they told me, uh, oh, no, you got to dirty this up. You've got to say how she hooked John onto drugs and she abandoned her child. And this is the opposite of what's true. And this is what the media was doing to her, just lies. And people just believed it for some reason. I mean, it's not done to any other human being on earth, no other actor, no other performer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And people would send her voodoo dolls in the 60s and mm-hmm. notes that said, leave John alone. And th- it was just a jealousy thing, you know, because of who John was and all. Well, John used to say, and I think she agreed that there was an element of racism in there, too. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, if you think about it, Japan was just not in the American consciousness. We didn't have sushi restaurants here. It was very mm-hmm. foreign to people. So... That's just another thing they could throw on to her. Hmm. So we're going to do sort of a round robin with questions, and I will now pass you on to Darren. All right. <laughs> um, Madeline, I, I have to start off by kind of like just um, um, building on what we were just talking about, about the importance of your book. You've essentially written the definitive uh, biography, complete biography of Yoko's life. And uh, I mean, I, I want to thank you personally as a fan because of the perception that is out there that oh, Yoko's the, she broke up the Beatles and that's all, you know, and the majority of the people out there think of Yoko as this, uh, as this witch who broke up the Beatles and has no talent. And if it weren't, for be- meeting John, nobody would know who she was. And the bottom line was 
long before they're long before their worlds ever ever intertwined yoko was already a cutting edge artist uh and the masses aren't interested or no i shouldn't say they aren't interested the masses are unaware of what yoko has done before and after and now there's a place to go that can read as a biography and also a reference to her work and i think it's it's commendable what you've done in this age of so many books tied into the fab four that you found a subject that needed to have a definitive chronicle of and you've accomplished it with this book um so i mean if this i mean i learned so much just from thumbing through it randomly pick picking out captures a short story you don't lose the plot you can just read it randomly it's great you know there's so much in here i know uh, for me i i i know a decent amount about yoko but a, a fraction compared to this and now that there is a now there's a resource to put yoko's place in history in music history and art history um and now it's all been documented Mm-hmm. Uh, so that the, the the masses who aren't in the know, who want to be in the know, now have a place to go. And, yeah, and I, those I, who uh, want to continue with the uh, the negative comments and uh, the show their ignorance about who and what Yoko is, it's also rather heavy and it's a good across the side <laughs> of the head for yeah. those who, you know, just don't get it. Well, here's one thing. There's one paragraph in the book that I think is the most important. And it's just that if they think she broke up the Beatles, it was really the opposite because she says that um, when John told her he was going to leave the group, she panicked because what's he going to be preoccupied with? You know, she was an artist. She was going to do her own thing. And he not only that, he turns to her and says, "Okay, now it's just you and me. And she was like, what? You know? And so yeah, that's a good example. People think that she latched on to John the Beatle, and we know who she is now because she latched on to John. In reality, um it was almost sort of the other way around, in that she guided John into these other avenues right. that he then went into. Yeah, the war is over, posters the bed, and she staged all that. She created, right. you know. She created that stuff. But just to compare, she was having those Chamber Street concerts in her loft in summer of 60, 61, when John was still in the cavern with Pete Best on drums. Mm -hmm. You know, and even with the Shea Stadium, there's a scenario where I think it was in Peter Brown's book, not that I'm advocating that, but they were talking about, the Beatles were sitting around talking about having been in the Shea Stadium. And Yoga said, oh, what were you doing in a baseball stadium? And they said, oh, we did sold out concerts there. And she said, oh, well, that year I was doing that. It's just famous band in the world. She didn't know. She didn't. Mm-hmm. And when she brought them to him to meet her parents in 70, 71 in Japan, you know, now there were the Rockefellers of Japan. They were super, super billionaires. They had amazing ancestral history that I mean, I usually don't like the beginnings of books where there's this ancestral, but this is incredible. And I worked it in in a way where it's the story of John meeting them and um, so he picks up the picture of her great grandfather, Yasuda, who is a billionaire banker. And he says, this guy was me in a past life. 
And Yaka says, well, don't say that. He was assassinated by a rebel. And that's just the beginning. And then they, the, the parents were not approving of him. He came in his overalls and his beard. And, they, you know, normally they'd say, oh, you're marrying a Beatle. Get me tickets to the concert. But <laughs> nothing like that. So there you go. Um, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of different aspects of your work, Madeline. Your website, uh, uh, there's a whole other world to what you write about and the music that you've grown up listening to, and you've turned that into uh, a journalism career in the way if you want to get some interesting photos and stories about Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, T-Rex, David Bowie, the Beatles individually, uh, it's all there on your website. So you take the topics that you love and you've turned it into this whole big uh, reading experience. You came to Yoko, uh, how did you find out about Yoko actually? I get the impression you knew about Yoko and her work separate from the- Yes, yes. it was in 1967. I saw a picture of her in uh, my parents' um, it was a Time or Newsweek magazine, and she was standing in front of her film bottoms, just a frame, and as a naked butt, and there's this cute little Japanese woman looking with this little sly smile, and I thought to myself, whoa, this is kooky. I want to know who she is. So I saved the picture. I still have it, and um, it was 67, and then a year later, I got the White Album, and it all came out about how she was with John, and uh, that's how... Oh, were you a Beatles fan? Oh, of course. Yeah. I was 10 with the White Album, Carry It to School. And the and the kids all peeled off my cover because they're like, the John and Yoko are naked under here. I'm like, no, no, that's not the No, that's that. something else. Thank you. You ruined my yeah. album. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so that's pretty fascinating that you came to Yoko completely independent of the Beatles, who you liked already. And this was all within a year and change of those worlds coming together. Yeah, it was. Um, so I would imagine from the beginning, from her coming into John's life and vice versa, you were there documenting, finding out things, collecting little articles, buying the music as it was coming out, the emergence of the plastic owner. Exactly. That's why I like, um, I always prefer books that are written by people who grew up with the stuff. It's like, you know, you're going to write about the Ramones and you didn't hear the album until 1997. Well, what are you telling me, you know? I, I want to read from, I know stuff already. I want to know even more. And if you're going to, it's a professor writing about the Ramones, I, which there is a book like that. I, I was like, wait a minute, this is my favorite album. And I can't read this. I'm so bored. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's why I, even every story on my blog is about stuff that I've loved, people that I've seen in concert in their heyday. Um, it's just all passionate and it's not critical of anything because you know, I mean, let let people that love the stuff write about the stuff. Why why panic? Because you don't know what you're talking about if you're panning something. And that's my philosophy. Uh, and I, I should mention Sparks when I mentioned all oh. those names. Um, and it was funny how the two of us, so our paths almost crossed just a few years ago when Sparks uh, had put out, I guess, a Hippopotamus. Okay. The album Hippopotamus. And they came to WFUV. And I remember um, when the interview was set up, I was actually a little nervous because they they just seemed the, the male brothers seemed like they were going to be a bit yeah. of a challenge of an interview. Uh, uh, super intellectual, artsy. 
I had no idea what to expect. And within five minutes, we were all laughing and goofing around. And uh, they turned out, it turned out to be one of my favorite interviews in recent years. And you work with Sparks. If you are a Sparks fan, Madeline's website's a great uh, resource to, to get into. Yeah, the I've been world. writing their fan club newsletter for 20 years or more. So, right. yeah, and we're friends and they're the greatest guys and everything's happening now because of the Edgar Wright documentary about them, the Sparks right. brothers. So yeah, check that out. It's great. Um, before we throw it over to Ken, um, so the book actually, in a way, your book sort of wrote itself because you were accumulating the material right. for years and years and years. And at what year, what point would you say, or maybe somebody gave you the idea, now's the time to turn this all into a proper book? How long ago was that? It was probably... Um right before COVID. And it took me all those, those, what was it, three years pretty much, or two, three years to assemble it and write an afterword and an introduction and balance it out and really finesse it. So three years, I guess it took, but it, it took my lifetime, it was all there. I just yeah. had to put it all together. How would this book have turned out? What, is it possible it wouldn't have happened if it weren't for COVID? Possibly, possibly, because I had all the time. I'm retired now also. And my blog, you know, I started that when I always wanted to be writer, but it didn't pay enough to, to support myself. And I didn't want to be edited. And I wanted to write what I wanted when I wanted. So that's how it all evolved. I've been doing, I've been on a roll now. Yeah. All right. Ken, you're up. All right. First of all, Madeline, again, thank you for writing this book. I haven't been able to read the whole thing yet, but I've already learned so much. Um, but I want to I want to bring up something which I found kind of fascinating and how the events of her childhood really affected her artwork through her whole life. And you go on to say that when uh, Japan was bombed in 1945, she realized that a lot of artwork was destroyed. And so in her mind, she said, well, I guess art is not permanent. <laughs> so that led her to put out her own unfinished work. And I guess that, that was an influence maybe in, in the interactive stuff that she does. Oh, yes. She's trying to communicate that everything is transient. Everything changes. Like prime example is the apple, you know, apple on the pedestal that John took a bite of. Mm -hmm. um, she meant for that to just be changing every day and deteriorating. And when it's gone, there'll just be some seeds left there, you know, and it's like the tombstone with some seeds on top. It's just life. And yeah. What else? Um, yeah, that's why she uses a lot of nature in her work as well. Seeds to plant and regrow, rebirth. Um, the sky, of course, which is, oh, that's the only permanent thing. That's why she loved it so much. Um, and then, of course, she had some mute. She had the box of smile, which I have here. It just says a box of smile on it. I don't know if you can see. And inside, of course, is just this mirror. And of course, she's smiling when you open it. And when she presented this thing to David Frost on his show in uh, early 70s, he opens it and goes, oh, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. He <laughs> was funny, but... But all her stuff, it's, it is a lot of humor. A lot of things that don't be, people don't know is that she's very funny. 
very humorous. And John also gave her that because she, they asked her once, what did John do for you? And she said, well, John brought me out of my mind game and brought me into, you know, his sense of humor and lightening up a little bit and laughing. And I was letting go of my ego a bit more. And he also brought her down from the ethereal avant-garde music that she was doing and gave her a beat. And guess what? She hardly went back to that she did I mean this this the vocalizing but she never really went back into like house that she did with all that coma that kind of thing she always stayed with pretty much traditionally structured music and you know John gave her that and she gave him so many other things and then in the book I have Pete Townsend speaking about um the the Destruction and Art Symposium. Um, the organizer, Gustav Metzger, had spoken at Pete's college and Yoko was part of that symposium and he saw her doing cut piece. And he says, the next thing you know, I'm smashing guitars on stage. And he's like, he loves Yoko. He's like, she's radical. She's um, she she's a revolutionary. She's trying to change the world through peaceful means. And he got her out really early on as well. Mm-hmm. And I have a whole section of him talking about her. And you know, I have Phil Spector talking about her. I have Paul McCartney, of course, and especially about how he helped reunite John and Yoko after their separation. So things that people really, really don't know. Mm. Although it is out there and I pulled it from archives. You know, when you, when you read Beatle history and often you'll hear that one of the things that drew John and Paul together was the fact that they lost their mothers at an early age. You go on early on here to talk about this whole concept of loneliness and the fact that in Yoko's life seemed like her mother was pretty detached from her Mm -hmm. and that the father was always away, banker, a billionaire. Mm -hmm. And in John's life, you know, we all know what happened with his mother getting killed at a young age, you know, and the father wasn't there when he needed him and all that. So that was that was part of the reason that drew them together, John and Yoko, because they had that in common. Right. So- and the war situation, he was born during the air raids over in London, in Liverpool. And she was born, you know, went through that at age 12 with the Tokyo bombings. And they're both children of war and they're both very, very lonely. And unfortunately, though, you know, they they were happy together, but the public reaction made them insular and they they weren't any more any less lonely be, being the most famous people in the world mm. and what people what people did to them well you probably just answered my next question because you know i'm wondering how did yoko react to i know she was famous in her own circles before meeting john but worldwide fame just for being john's girlfriend and then wife you know, how how did she handle that initially? Was it something really difficult for her to deal with? Yeah, she first she, she said that she didn't understand how to handle the media. She would just like run in from the, the limo to the place. And John would say, no, no, you have to wave and smile. You have to, you know, like kind of acknowledge these people. It was strange. Like he taught her certain things. And then she taught him about, you know, the staging a mass event like the war is over posters or the bed in and she orchestrated all he wouldn't know what to do she she made phone calls she knew other artists all over the world and how would how could we do this who can help me with that and she would get it all done and then 
to answer, you know, how she felt about it, you find out later how she felt about being the wife of John. She stopped her whole art career for decades to put out his artwork, his music, you know, the Lost Lennon tapes first, and then, you know, all the gifts she has given us of all his music. Who did that? She did it. So she loved him. She was yeah. going to do that. She's, she's done a phenomenal job. Just for the Lost Lennon tapes alone, I say thank you so much. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I, I look forward every single week to listening to that radio show. Um, you, one of the things that I like a lot about your book is that you you do go into talking about her first husband, which few people even know anything about. But turns out he's a very famous film composer as well, and he's still with us. He's still he's alive. a he's a he's a musical composer, um, avant garde. He's very popular in Japan. He's still making records. Toshi Ichinagi, um, and they always remain, I mean, not friendly, like they saw each other, but she always asked after him if they had a mutual friend, you know, he's in his nineties now. And um, yeah, he really understood her and he would help, help write out all her scores um, and traveled with her. Of course he was associated with John Cage and the three of them really worked a lot together. Um, and he defended her in, in the press in Japan when they would pan her, you know, for being strange or whatever. Like, well, there are some artists who have, you know, you have to have a seventh sense to understand what they're doing. And she's one of them. And that's the thing. She has um, this strange, like a cosmic consciousness where she sees things that we don't see. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she uses negative space. She'll always say history is not what happened. It's what didn't happen. And there's a part in... Um, where she's learning uh, music history or composition. And they told her to listen to this clock ticking as a metronome, but she would hear the, the silence in between the ticking rather than the actual sounds. Uh -huh. So that's how, you know, she, she has this whole other way of thinking and she has a lot of things that we can really, really learn from. Could you explain why the, the first marriage didn't work out since, you know, the, her husband was into the avant-garde and, and supported her. Yeah, it didn't because she was just discouraged by the whole art scene being a male club. She mm. was just like, when well, we're around these men, I'm not getting anything of my own, you know, really recognized or done. And she went into a depression at the time. Um, she was hospitalized in Japan. And that's when the second husband found her, Tony Cox. And he became her producer pretty much and entrepreneur. He he was instrumental in getting her the Indica Gallery gig. And uh, John Dunbar, the owner of Indica, described Tony as kind of like hysterical. You know, he's like fanatical, just really go-getter to, to get her work shown. And he he worked with her on Cut Piece and the Bagism in New York also. And yeah, and Japan, England. Okay. And that's Kyoko's dad, right, Tony Cox? Mm-hmm. He's Kyoko's dad. Mm -hmm. um, do you get into um, the, the, her relationship with Kyoko back then uh, when Kyoko was a young girl? What happened there with Kyoko and Tony Cox? Yes, I uh, do. In the Tony Cox section, I'm talking about what really happened. You know, um, you know, they were all friendly at first. You know, he was enamored of meeting John and all. And he had a new girlfriend at the time. And they took Kyoko to the um, bed in in Montreal but he felt that, you know, they're on drugs. They're, they're all over the place. And he had raised the girl, you know, just like John had raised Sean. 
and um, they were very close. And so she said, okay, you can raise her, but let's, you know, we'll just get together when we can. And um, there was a point where um, there was discussion about him becoming their manager because they needed an assistant, which eventually became Dan Richter. But um, Tony didn't want to do that because he decided to find God instead. So they became the members of this church and um, disappeared, just disappeared with the with Yoko. And Yoko, you know, they tried to fight it. They they won custody in court, but there was no way they could find them. They did find them at one point, but they it was a whole big mess. And um, the girl ended up um, actually both of them sent Yoko a telegram when John was murdered and you know, saying sorry. And then she didn't hear from her again till the early 90s. Um, and she didn't even believe it was her. But the, it what happened was I think her husband had convinced her because she Kyoko was pregnant. And she said, he said to her, you know, your mom should really get to know the, the grandchild. So that's when she contacted her. And they've been great ever since. Yeah, they have a relationship again. Yeah, good one. Did you ever meet her? Kyoko? Yeah. No. But she has the book, though. She asked me for the book. Okay. Can I follow up? You were talking about how Yoko orchestrated the political campaigns for uh, for her and John. Uh, we all know from the very beginning that John was a peacenik. And even, you know, the Beatle years, he stated how much, you know, he was against the war in Vietnam and all that. But as far as going full blast with, you know, the the left wing mm. uh, you know, people in that in that world, the Jerry Rubens and Abby Hoffman's, was that was Yoko a major influence in that, or did not at all? She no, John was enamored by those people because you know Jerry and Abby were very funny. They they had a a great humor, and they did crazy things like they throw money around the stock exchange, and John fell in love with that. Yeah, that's so cool, you know. But he didn't realize they were just so radical and even a little bit like they wouldn't stop it small violence you know and yoko wasn't into that but she went along with it um just to to talk with them and bring them on the mike douglas show which was a crazy thing but um she wasn't really too enamored of that um she knew it could you know be dangerous for them she was more about the um you know, the billboards of happy Christmas and right. Um, just the peaceful messages. Yeah. Yes. The nonviolence, the sitting back and letting it all, you know, just giving a message that way. But one thing that I think is really cool, because I do put a lot of detail in the book and it's not just about Yoko. Um, I talk about the wholesome time in New York city album mm. and they did that John Sinclair rally to get him out of jail for being possessing two marijuana joints but in a strange twist of fate john sinclair was one of the first people to legally purchase marijuana in michigan at age 78 a few years ago huh. it's like crazy stuff like that that's funny yeah. and actually um john sinclair was freed from jail right after the the rally right before the album came out yeah you know it had already happened so but still good song <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what else? Um, um Alan. Um, a couple of things actually caught my eye, and you know, just 
in the middle of the book, um, the section about, for instance, Paul um, helping John and Yoko get back together. Um, and you quoted, I think, Paul from the Playboy interview he did in 84. I was wondering if it was something you'd ever talk to Yoko about. Oh, no, I didn't really talk to her about it. But there is audio of Paul speaking about this whole thing. So I know it's legit. Oh, yeah. I really need to ask her. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was just wondering if, if, you know, if there was more detail about, you know, what their discussion was. I mean, he does go into, into a lot of detail in that quote, but, um, you know, it, it's kind of strange that, you know, Paul was not sort of famously a Yoko fan. I mean, he, it does come out in Get Back film that he was more supportive than people thought and that um, George may have been less supportive than people thought. Mm. Um, but, you know, it, it, it just seemed um, unusual in a way for him to get involved in that. Well, um, he, well, Let's start at the beginning. Okay. So basically in 68, when Hey Jude came out, mm -hmm. um, he was starting to realize, you know, John really loves this woman. Mm -hmm. And Paul was into the avant-garde as well. He had met Yoko before she met John. Mm -hmm. um, and then John went ahead and did Revolution 9 and kind of one-upped Paul, you know, before he could tell the world, hey, I'm avant-garde. John did it. Mm -hmm. um, but in, in Hey Jude, yes, it, a lot of it is about Julian, but it's Paul telling John to pursue, go ahead. You found her, now go and get her. You've been waiting for someone to perform with. What's right. that? And then well, I realized this one is that the line, um, so let it out and let it in, probably refers to the first thing that Yoko ever gave John at the Indica Gallery, she handed him a card that said, breathe. Hmm. And it's just all these little, little things that tell you that Paul wasn't as big of a jerk as he's meant to believe either. And then when you ask her about him, she says, you know, Paul and I have a lot in common. We both went through a tremendous amount of pain just from being associated with everything we're doing. And now even as partners in Apple and all. So she has sympathy for him. Now he has sympathy for her and they get along, you know, they get on with it really. Mm -hmm. And another thing that um, struck me was you, you mentioned uh, Paul's 1979 contract with Columbia say, with a clause in there saying that he would have the right to record with um, John, George and Ringo as the Beatles, should that come up? Um, that was where, do you remember where you found that? Oh, I have the sources somewhere. I, yeah, it's documented. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, if you can Google it and see it. Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, Paul was always into bringing everybody together. And when he saw it separating off, he had a panic attack, you know, mm -hmm. but he was always amicable after he had his initial meltdown. Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of her art and music, given how, how large a body of work that is, um, and also how varied, I mean, going from, um, 
things like life with the lions at one end and the sort of pop songs at the other end and you know not to mention the the variety in the art and films is are there any particular pieces that are favorites of yours or areas that you focus on most that you like best well i have certain favorite art pieces like i said um the albums when people ask me, I always go with the double ones because there's so much more on them. So I love Fly and Approximately Infinite Universe. And Fly is more like, avant-garde and the other one is more traditional style songs. But even though they're traditional, they're very different. She's got funk on there. She's got, you know, Elephant's Memory. Great, great band and just amazing messages and can't ask for more. So those are my two favorites. What about in artworks? Uh, I like one actually called Three Spoons. And it's, there's plexiglass case and there's four, four spoons. And funny, right? But it's really just about misinformation versus truth. I mean, they're telling you it's three spoons, but you're, you know mm -hmm. it's four spoons. So little things like that. Um, what else? I love the apple, of course, um, the ladder and ceiling painting. And the funny thing about that is I, I had an old issue of Beetle Fan where, so ceiling painting is the thing with the thing where John met Yoko and they clicked. He climbs up the ladder and he saw the little, the painting on the ceiling with the tiny little word that said, yes, magnifying glass hanging there. And that's when he realized, wow, all art is an anti-negative. This is a yes, I'm going to stay and, and look through the rest of this. But uh, I found a little interview where they asked her, you know, we found out that you kind of uh, had a neighbor that you, you took his ladder and you painted it white and put it in the museum. And this guy, she's like, well, we didn't really steal it. We just borrowed it. And I thought he'd be happy that it was in the museum. But this is so funny. Like she just stole the neighbor's ladder. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, why do you think um, people don't see her humor for what it is? Because as, as you say, there is this humorous side and it's not really what she's known for necessarily, but especially if you talk to her in person, it, it comes out all the time. Um, I think I know the reason. When I was at the fest and I gave my talk, People were enamored by it and they, and it was when Get Back came out and all, and they came up to me and they said, yeah, Get Back, it was like the first time we really saw her as a human being, um, you know, talk. Hmm. they just ignore her. They take what they hear about her and they repeat it, but they've never witnessed this person. I don't know how they can avoid her. I mean, she's on, you know, she's famous, she's <laughs> doing things constantly but they just, they shut down when it comes to her. It's so strange. Mm. I mean, if you spend five minutes with her, you know, she's funny. She's always winking and laughing at something. Mm. Okay. John and her, they were laughing all the time. That's one thing they said to her, what do you miss most about John? She goes, the laughter. We were always, he just laughing at me because I was so small and I would laugh at his accent and you laugh at my accent. And we just, and he was hilarious. So imagine Oh, I'd love to be a fly on the wall, just them talking and laughing. Mm -hmm. um, I should pass you back to Ken because we're heading towards the end of the hour. Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, it's, it's a lot 
it's fascinating to talk about Yoko because I think like most artists, she was, is a complex person, but you really help to understand what she's like as an artist. And there's a side of her that I think is very serious. And there's the side that's very funny. And there's always going to be those people in the world who don't get what she does. Um, like, I think it was Dan Richter who I asked about the, the half a wind show that she did. Mm -hmm. And what is all this, you know, uh, half half a browser or half a chess set or you know and why should everything be looked at as something complete why can't we look at things differently well that's another um instance of seeing negative space and that came out of loneliness also I think Tony had just left her and she she was feeling like half a person mm. so she always puts you know the thing you're going to focus on you know she's very um subliminal everything exists in the mind for her she she says the spirit world is what what we're really about the body is just a body you know we really exist in our minds and that's what the half was um and speaking of dan richter i just wanted to read you something he encouraged me to put this together in a book as well um and he he wrote me a little review and he wrote very beautiful. You capture her spirit and vision. You tell her story so well, and it's very important that someone does. Yoko spent so much of her life being misunderstood and misrepresented. She is such a special person and artist. The world needs the record you are creating. I am amazed not only by how, how much you know about Yoko, but also how well you write about it. Thank you for what you're doing. It's wonderful see, to see Yoko and her art celebrated. Wow. Very nice. He's known her since the fifties, you know, the late fifties, and you know, speaking of quotes, I wanted to read a couple that are here in the book, which which says a lot, I think, about how important um, Yoko was to John. Um, there's one here from Klaus Vormann. Oh yes. Up to the time Yoko came into the picture, John, even with all his success and money, was a frustrated, helpless creature. When Yoko appeared, he bloomed. It was an amazing thing to see. For him, that was the revolution. Yoko was not only his lover, she was like a mother to him and they did everything together. He was so close to this woman, it is impossible to imagine. There you go. And he said that in Uncut Magazine, 2019. And I just wanna read one more quote. This is from Arthur Janoff, who said, the level of his, John's pain was enormous. He was almost completely non-functional. He couldn't leave his house. He could hardly leave his room. He had no defenses. He was falling apart. He was just one big ball of pain. This is someone the whole world adored and it didn't change a thing. At the center of all that fame and wealth and adulation was just a lonely little kid. Sometimes it's hard to imagine someone having that much success and being so loved all over the world could be in pain like that. That's right. And you remember them as a positive force, smiling, waving, you know, running through airports, being chased by the media, dancing, you know, and I don't know, you just get a warm feeling when you think about that. We all grew up in those times, the 60s and 70s. And I just try to put a lot more um, information into the details about that so that people can really see what they were feeling at the time and what the message really was. And there's a whole chapter about the war is over posters, a chapter about every album and every song, but I just really want to convey what they meant and never got a chance to really explain. They were always talking, but, you know, they didn't touch upon, 
they didn't feel like they had to explain. Mm-hmm. Really, people misunderstood. Also, it, it's always been my impression. I shouldn't say always because maybe it's more something I've realized in recent years that despite the fact that the Beatles because of their enormous success, were given so much creative freedom in the studio that even with all that freedom, I think that John felt stifled somewhat. And Yoko opened up the doors to him to the idea that everything that you do can be considered art. Oh, exactly. Just just compare, for example, um, an album cover which has been looked upon as being so classic and artistic as Sgt. Pepper. And then they turn around and have the White Album um, cover, which is the complete opposite of that. And it, it's, they're both art. They're you know? both art. And actually, Paul was, uh, got Richard Hamilton to do that, you know, and he was uh, thinking of Yoko. He, there's a quote in the book where he said, I, I, I'm pretty sure it had something to do with Yoko or Yoko appreciate it. So... Yeah. There's the two ends of what art could be. Yeah, and I think Yoko took it to the extreme in a way that the public just found so many people, the mainstream public would find really hard to accept. You know, here's somebody writing a lot of great pop music and a lot of groundbreaking pop and rock music. And then he's turning around and, you know, John and Yoko are saying and screaming each other's names and somehow that's supposed to be, you know, considered art you know, along the same lines of what he was doing with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, we, we talked a bit on this show about, we, we mentioned the two minutes of silence that's on Life with the Lions. And then you bring out in the book, and Alan has pointed out that John Cage was doing the same thing, you know. With, right. for but, there, but John and Yoko's was an homage to the miscarried child also. So it took it to another level. Yeah. But for so many people, they they... To a mainstream public, it's hard to accept that. Right. In fact, that anything that you do can be considered art, whether you labor on it for years or whether it's something you come up with spontaneously, you know, and Yoko opened up his mind to all that. And I think he found that to be refreshing, you know, and stimulating as an artist. So, Plus being in love and having all that energy spill out and, collaborating with the person that you love most in the world and now you know her exhibitions are traveling all over the world millions of people are passing through and loving them so it's not such a foreign idea anymore well that's good but these things take time for the public to accept oh yeah you know, you know, to put it in perspective, it's not just Yoko people have a problem with. People have still a problem with John Cage's Four Minutes 33, and that's from the 1950s. And, and your description of it and, and, and how it works and what it's supposed to be about was, was really good, I thought. Oh, um, you know, it was done in an outdoor theater in Woodstock, and it was supposed to, you know, bring in all the ambient sound. It isn't really a silent piece at all, hmm. you know. Um, but, you know, so it's not everyone looks at, you know, Yoko and two minute silence or the Newtopian national anthem, which is 15 seconds of silence and say, oh, my God, you know, big deal. But, you know, people still have a problem with Cage, too. And Cage is, is you know, a, an iconic figure in composition. Mm-hmm. Just thought I'd point that out for perspective. <laughs> oh, yeah. But I just think that and I know I've gotten some uh, 
opposition on this that I think Yoko was the biggest influence on John's life overall. Oh, yes, definitely. Because she opened up his mind to all of this being art. And um, if the sky's the limit with what you can do, you know. You know, he was looking to break free. Yeah. And she really freed him more than he could ever imagine. Hmm. I have to wonder, I mean, we talked so much about September of 1969 uh, and the meeting that the Beatles had where they were talking about their next album after Abbey Road. And then long after that, John and Yoko and the Plessicono Band did the live piece in Toronto show. Right after that, John announced that he quit. So I'm just, I'm wondering what it was about that show. Was it just everything building up to that moment? About the show that made him quit? Yeah, it just seemed like, well, why right after that? Maybe he saw what it was like to play with other people. You had Eric Clapton, mm -hmm. Klaus Foreman, whole refreshing. Now that show wasn't particularly his favorite moment. I mean, he was really super nervous and on drugs and, you know, wasn't the greatest thing, but he he just saw what it's like. Okay, I can tell the band what I want to play. We're going to do it. We got Eric here. Um, I think that was probably it. I have a whole chapter chapter on plastic ono band and all the evolving members and the whole idea behind right. it so yeah he loved that and the whole idea like you said with the plastic ono band that anybody can be a member mm -hmm. could be changing with everything yeah, because he didn't want to have like uh four guys on salary for the rest of his life again he wanted flux flux like yoko would have fluxes right. um but one little illustration of how beautiful she is, is that this girl wrote to Yoko in 1981 and said, um, I have to tell you that John passed away on my birthday, so I could never have a happy birthday again. So Yoko said, well, don't think of it as a sad day. Think of it as the day that John's spirit was set free to travel the universe. And she continued sending this girl a birthday card every year for decades. And that's just a tiny example. I mean, most of her charity and generosity is done anonymously. She has helped so many people, whether it's, you know, friends, families, band members, uh, you know, major charities all over the world. She's always giving, always positive, always peaceful. There's no reason for all these lies to be believed anymore. And quite a lot of it isn't even publicized. Right. She does it anonymously on purpose. She doesn't want the, the accolades or the, the publicity. Right. I just want to say I've had the chance to interview Yoko twice on the phone, and she was delightful. When um, her Rising album came out, we talked about that. And when the John Lennon acoustic album came out, we talked mm -hmm. about that. She couldn't have been nicer. No, she, she's beautiful. Darren? Yeah, I'm. I'm. Would like to touch on her strength uh, as as a person uh, in the aftermath of being within feet of her husband getting murdered and having to experience that whole thing firsthand. And ask you, could you, in a nutshell, try to maybe sum up where she found the inner strength to continue on fairly quickly? following yeah. John's death, um, getting the walking on thin ice single out there. These are the things that we saw. 
I'm sure there's other examples behind the scenes where she didn't roll up into a ball and hide in the corner for a very long period of time. She found a strength within her to, yeah. to stand up and to rise up in the aftermath of John's death. We saw it through Walking on Thin Ice and then the uh, incredible Season of Glass album. Um, uh, can you can you kind of um, uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on that inner strength and and what she did to kind of bounce back as quickly as she did, for lack of a better way of putting it? Well, she didn't really have the inner strength. She didn't know she had it. And it all stems from having to raise Sean. You know, she had this five-year-old boy that needed to be <laughs> taken care of. And also the music was cathartic for her. She always returned to music to express her pain. And even Sean said those um, recording sessions, he was five, six when he, when he went to every session with her. And he remembers the whole recording process and how she knew every technical aspect. He taught, she taught him a lot about recording. Um, and he was amazed how she turned that horrible tragedy into art. Um, and then, of course, you know, she wasn't really that stable. I mean, she she was still shaken. Um, and then you, you think that John's death was the worst thing that was going to happen, but the worst was yet to come, really, with all the the thefts and the kidnapping threats and just the attacks she received as a widow. Um, everybody was stealing from her. Everybody was slandering her. That was the second nightmare. And I don't think I, I don't think it's all common knowledge that that was going on. No, so, no, except that the books that came out were good sellers because they were all scandalous and tabloid style and people believed all that stuff as well. So there's stuff that went on that it's all in, in this chapter called A Wind That Never Dies. And it's all about John's death and the aftermath and um, what she had to deal with. And it was not anything that anybody should have to deal with. Right, right. Any, um, could you point us towards maybe uh, uh, a publication, whether it be a book or an article or whatever the case might be, that got it right? when it was dealing with Yoko or maybe specific. Um... About that specific area, there's a, an article called The Betrayal of John Lennon, and it's written by Vicki Sheff. It's online. I, you can hardly get through it. It's so disturbing. Vicki Sheff, okay. Mm. Yeah, and um, when you were putting your book together and doing all your research, I guess you were kind of forced to kind of sift through some of the, oh, for lack of a better way of putting it, some of the crap that was out there about Yoko and were able to kind of like push all of that away. Um, was it, were there areas of when you were putting your book together where you, you, you hit maybe a topic or two or something that you didn't want to include? Um, whether it maybe was something that maybe you doubted whether it was relevant or not, or it was unnecessary to expose, even if it was a factual event or something like that, or something you might have discovered in one of these other questionable books? Well, the same reason I didn't interview anyone for my book 
is, you know, there's these memories that aren't accurate, then who's making up something and then who wasn't really there. And, you know, I just use everything that was factual to debunk all these mistruths. And um, as far as leaving anything out, I didn't mention who wrote some lie and why it's a lie. I just presented the truth. Um, I didn't. And as far as information, you know, I, I wrote about it from a very human perspective. I wrote, um, I used quotes where Yoko said things like, um, you know, when he was was killed and she would go into the kitchen and the, the cats would go to the doorway looking for John and he wouldn't come. And the cats were never the same again. They would hide in the corner or they would sit on the radio when they heard his voice come on. Just little things like that. That to me, you know, she put the glasses and blood on the cover. And I do talk about that, you know, John's glasses on Season of Glass album cover, because she saw that pool of blood. You know, that's what what it's it's like a brutal way of showing you, you know, what they experience. But I like to show these little human things where, you know, the the cats missed him or just simple little things to to bring home that these were human beings you know and this is what was done to them it's not just that it's john lennon and yoko ono but look you know mm -hmm. and try to understand that that this was a family earlier this year um uh an album came out called ocean child mm -hmm. uh that benjamin gibbard of death cat for cutie was behind uh what are some of your uh, thoughts on that record and some of your favorite songs on that album because that really does a fantastic job in doing what your book does in trying to introduce the music end to a whole new gener generation yeah i like the track by japanese breakfast but actually i'm a purist i if i'm gonna hear yoko i'm gonna hear yoko you want yeah. the original okay yeah all right that's how i am but um that was a good track and some of the remixes are okay but i didn't get into those dancey ones too much um but yeah i mean it's yoko all yoko all the time over here <laughs> all right could might there be i would imagine there is uh, a rather sizable archive same as with john john's work is there any possibility that maybe sean would oversee uh a tapping into uh yoko's recordings and 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 put out volumes of unreleased material uh is there any of that possibly has that ever been discussed um i know that they're putting out in other countries they, i know of japan and germany they're putting out her live um tour of japan uh, the one step festival right. concert from 74 um so that's the first thing and possibly you know possibly i don't know they still have to finish with the reissues i guess that they had you know they didn't finish all those yet so right 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 secretly canadian label was mm -hmm. supposed to continue with the yoko reissues and they didn't end up and i spoke to someone at the label at the time and said well what's the timetable and they were like well we're doing them we just don't know when and we're talking specifically about season of glass uh, mm -hmm. It's all right, star piece. Um, I don't know if they were going to go beyond that or not, but um, maybe, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that's so maybe those, hopefully, hopefully those still happen if somebody at Secretly Canadian is watching this. Yeah, we'll see. I, I'm not in touch with any of those people, but I don't know. Anyway, I mean, I do have to, again, I can't commend you enough on this because what this is, is now is the singular, you know, kind of go-to 
uh, book on all things Yoko. And if, 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 if her reputation is going to change, when I say reputation, I mean, if the perception of the general public is going to change, it's going to start here. Well, uh, thank you. Your book. I felt it was my responsibility. You know, I know this woman. She's a very special person and she needs to be understood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's too important. Now, do we uh, want to, Ken, Alan, do you have any, any other thoughts? I just wanted to bring up, because you, you, you mentioned the album that came out this year uh, with the covers of, of Yoko songs. Um, I always think it's important with a lot of artists that these compilations come out because it's introducing her music to the fans of those artists. So new generations can discover Yoko's music, you know, with a clean slate without any built-in prejudice or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering, I don't know if you know anything about this. I'm sure you were there, but there was a, a birthday concert for Yoko in Brooklyn several mm -hmm. years back and Yoko performed and Sean performed and Bette Midler was there and, um, they had the plastic auto band there. Yes. Klaus Foreman and, and, um, and Eric Watson. Yeah. And I would think, why hasn't that come out? You know, uh, well, here's a paragraph in my book about that. Okay. <laughs> and actually Beatle fan reviewed my book and they singled out this quote because they said, this book is by an Ono super fan for super fans. And they said the subject this book, like the subject herself, is likely to have a limited audience. That was their opening line. I'm like, why? Why? Anyway, so they. This is my, and I'm I'm kind of tongue in cheek here, but I do mean it. I was living someone else's dream, sitting in the front row while Eric Clapton wailed away right in front of me. Several hours of boring technical virtuosity can't compete with one sincere primal howl from Yoko, but Clapton gets 10 points for showing up and supporting her. But I have a whole review of the show there. Okay. Well, I just think for history's sake, no matter what, it should come out. You know? It should. I mean, they did film everything. I've always seen cameras at her shows, but I don't know what they're doing with it. <laughs> yeah. Would you know how the whole thing started with Yoko, um, her songs being on the dance charts, did it all start with Walking on Thin Ice? And was yeah. there behind it in particular? Because she has a, a new audience in that genre. Yeah, yeah. Let me. So she, it was when she was 70 years old, um, she did the remix and John's prediction was right. You know, it, it did become number one. Um, and it was with, let me just look at the... Um, I have a whole list in the back of the book of her number one songs. Mm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I'm not really um, up on these remixers, but this Pet Shop Boys and um, it's the last page of the book. Where is it? I'll probably find it. It's my book. It's the last. Bit, and I have it facing her favorite songs. And one of the things she said, they said to her, what, what album would you save if you were on a deserted island and it was floating away? And she said, Double Fantasy, which was surprising to me. Nice. So I remember one song, um, so it was Twisted Records and the club community like embraced her and she went up in the DJ booths and danced all night with them and 
promoted everything. So she had Walking on Thin Ice, 2003, Every Man, Every Woman, 2004. And it goes on through 2016. No, 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 give peace a chance. I'm not getting enough. Give me something, wouldn't it? Move on fast, talking to the universe, hold me, Walking on Thin Ice again. Um, Angel, I'm your angel, and um, Hell in Paradise. So those are her um, number ones. Yeah. I think well, a lot of those remixes, um, people don't think of them this way, but it, it actually sort of in a way plays into the whole unfinished music thing from way back because she's, she's saying, okay, this is my record, but this isn't necessarily the end of it. You know, right, you, you add take to it. And, yeah. Yeah. So that's that. Mm. So there it um, is. So what's next? Is there a next for you after this book? Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, promoting it because I self-published so I have to sell nobody would let me do a 500 plus page book so I don't know how to do it myself so I'm self-promoting it and then um, maybe I'll do something with the stories on my blog try to organize them somehow into a cohesive can you um, tell us tell the folks watching how to go about getting the book your website uh, all this stuff, these resources, if people want to buy the book, find out more about you and the other artists that you've written with, written with, written for. Um... Yeah, sure. Um, my, my blog is MadelineX.com, M-A-D-E-L-I-N-E-X, as in x-ray.com. And the book is, um, there's a there's a piece on my book, on my blog. I've got my friend Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. He's supporting it. He loves it. Um and there's a blog about the book. And then to order the book, it's conceptualbooks.com, conceptualbooks.com. Is this, is this a, a private a publisher or is this your? your? It's mine. It's, it's yours. Yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Okay, well, thank you very much. This You're is welcome. Oh, should I mention something about the cover? Oh, yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. I was going to actually ask you because I know I've seen it in another interview. Yeah, everyone loves this. The artist and why you chose that to be the cover of your book. Yeah, the artist is from Australia. Her name is Kat McInnes, M-A-C-I-N-N-E-S. She has katmckinnis.com. And it was a greeting card that I got years ago um, online. And I just love the picture so much. I mean, it, it represents her in every era. I love the, the cloud and the dove and just everything about it. So... <laughs> I asked her permission and she's thrilled and she's loving every everything about it. Great. There we go. All right. Well, thank you, Madeline. Thank you, guys. And uh, again, the book is, let me model it here. That's a frightening thought, me modeling anything. Uh, <laughs> In your mind, the infinite universe of Yoko Ono. That's the hardcover that you're holding up. I have the hardcover. Right. Um, and there's also uh, Ken can. Soft cover. Ken's got the soft cover there. Same cover. With and um, and you can order them uh, at uh, the uh, conceptualbooks.com. Yeah, that's it. Right? Okay. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for being here with us. Madeline. I appreciate it. Thank you for loving Yoko and supporting her. Okay, so it was great talking to Madeline, and um, we'll go around and give our contact information, starting with Ken. Thank you, Alan. Well, if any of you would like to contact me directly by email, you can write to me at everylittlething at att.com. Uh, 
I also want to mention on uh, my YouTube channel called Ken Michaels Radio, I just did an interview with Owen Lynn, who is a music journalist who has written for a lot of different publications, including uh, We Are Cult, uh, for example, um, Culture Sonar. And in fact, he just put out a brand new book, George Harrison in the 70s. I'll be talking to him about this book uh, pretty soon. And uh, actually for this interview, I thought that we would touch on, he wrote an article on the song, We All Stand Together from Paul McCartney and defended it. And because there are certain songs, especially in Paul's solo career that the critics really knocked for one reason or another, I thought, why not do a show where we com we're combining We All Stand Together and Mary Had a Little Lamb. <laughs> and, uh, and Owen defends both those songs in that video. Again, that's Ken Michaels Radio. There's a whole bunch of interviews I've done in the last few weeks and in over a year since I started uh, the channel. So a lot to dig into with one-on-one -on -one interviews with people who had personal experiences with the Beatles and work with them creatively and lots of authors and podcasters and Darren's in there and Alan's in there and we'll get them both in there again. If you can, please subscribe, Ken Michaels Radio. My other podcast show, which is Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast, airs live every other Monday night um, at 9 p.m. Eastern on our YouTube channel. The next show, which will be on August the 8th, We'll be talking about the uh, Japan tour for George Harrison, the Live in Japan release, what we thought about that, and the actual tour itself. So if you can, check out that show, Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast on our YouTube channel next Monday night, August the 8th, 9 p.m. Eastern time, and subscribe to that channel as well. Don't forget, there's always my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. There's Beatles trivia every single week. You can win one of 10 great prizes. And um, there's always a winner every week, whether it's books, CDs, DVDs, you name it. And lots of older interviews of mine that are just audio interviews, all talking about the Beatles. Uh, so again, that's at kenmichaelsradio.com. And that's it. Okay, Darren. Um, I am aware of the fact that during this particular show, uh, lighting has been uh, an issue for me. Um, I'm very, I am here. It's at the moment very dark. So I thought I would just wrap things up with um, a little special high-tech lighting as I tell you how you can get in contact with me. Um, you can reach me if you want to shoot me an email at DarrenDeVivo at WFUV.org. Uh, obviously, it's my WFUV email address. And as for WFUV, um, you can catch me on the radio Monday through Thursday night starting at 10 a.m. Whoops. Uh, that's 10 p.m. because nighttime is p.m. Monday through Thursday nights, 10 p.m. And the reason why I got mixed up with the a.m., I'm happy to say that I am back to a full four hour um, air shift, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday nights, uh, 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. once again uh, for the past 28 months during the pandemic. Uh, you know, my weeknight show was cut in half, uh, which was due to some technical matter that uh, I never understood, uh, but it was necessary to stop things at midnight so, uh, you know, my weeknights got trimmed and cut in half, uh, 10 P to midnight. Now back to the normal uh, 10 
p.m. to 2 a.m. Monday through Thursday nights plus Saturday, uh, 1 to 4 in the afternoon. So you have the email address. Go to Facebook. That's the best way. I'm always on Facebook. I have two Facebook pages. You could uh, shoot me a friend request at Darren DeVivo or go, if you find my other page, just click follow or like. I'm not sure exactly how Facebook has that set up, but uh, that's, that's the deal for me. Okay, so you can find me on Facebook at either Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed. Um, you can write to all of us by email at things we said today radio show at gmail.com. Possibly the longest email address in Beatle fandom, in any case. Things we said today radio show at gmail.com. Um, we also have a Twitter feed at Things We Said Fab. We have two Facebook pages and counting Things We Said Today and Things We Said Today Beatles radio fans. The shows get posted there. Um, people comment on them. Please feel free to do that. Um, you can find the video version of the show, which you probably know because if you're watching it, you know, it's you found it um, on YouTube. Uh, also, we're on Podbean and um, iTunes and iHeartRadio and many other places where fine podcasts are found. Um, so feel free to subscribe to us at any and all of those places. And, uh, and there we are. So for Ken Michaels and Darren DeVivo, I'm Alan Cozen, and thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye.